Good morning. If you have a Bible this morning, why don't you grab that and open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll be looking at verse 6 and following. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 and following. Well, uh, you know, in American culture, uh, we hate the beaten path. For the most part in America, the beaten path is not one Americans want to follow. Being, being found faithful is an American virtue, but it's not lauded. In, uh, in America, being a trailblazer is lauded. Being the innovator, going where no one's been before, is the American value. Um, and there's great things about that. There's times trails need to be blazed. There's times that we need to go a new way, but for the most part, the reason paths become paths is because those who've gone before us knew what they were doing. They knew something we didn't. We need to question the the paths sometimes, but when we come to places where we need to dig in, sometimes we need to make sure we stay on the beaten paths. And this morning, as we open up the book of Corinthians, we're going to watch Paul try to do two things at once. He's going to be trying to push in to these Corinthian believers, telling them there's a time to press on into what is new, and there's also a time to cling to what is old and to find the touch point into the ancient. And that's exactly what Paul's going to be doing in our text this morning. As you've, if you've been with us as we've studied Corinthians, Paul has been trying to convince the Corinthian church that it is the gospel that's important, not the teacher and not the style. He's defending himself and his fellow teacher, Apollos, trying to point out that being faithful is what's important, that clinging to the message is what's important, not how it's delivered. And this morning's text, we're going to watch him begin to put forward what is his sharpest indictment of the Corinthian church. And if this sounds foreign to you in 2017, I hope by the end it's going to land straight in our yards uh, for some very good reasons. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, the Apostle Paul writes this, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So when we watch Paul say this, he's bringing this back to this main point about being faithful to the gospel. He tells them we're applying these things to ourselves, but also to your benefit. Once again, if you've been with us as we've studied Corinthians, Paul uses the word brothers. He uses it more in the Corinthian letters than he does anywhere else in the New Testament. He wants to make sure that no one walks away from this thinking they're not part of the family. They're brothers. They're, they are Christians together. It's a, it's a deep term of affection. And with what he's about to lay on them, it's important that we remember he is trying to establish warmth while at the same time speaking harder truths, something we're not great at in our culture anymore, right? Speaking the hard truth, but also managing to convey the deep love that we want to convey. 
And he brings into it something old for those Jewish believers among these Christians. And it's this phrase, what is written? What is written? Not to go beyond what is written. The Greek here is awkward. It's a very awkward phrase in Greek. And because of that, most modern scholars think that it is a very common idiom, right? So in Greek, it looks weird to us, but you know, 500 years from now, people may look at our tweets, terrifying to think of, you know, and see something that goes, don't count your chickens for it's hatched. And then go, what a curious phrase. Like, what could that possibly mean? Because it's a common idiom to us. We know what that, we know what the phrase means. It's, it's cultural. We get it. This phrase is awkward in Greek, and so they immediately think it's got to have something deeper to do, especially with Judaism. Now, if you know anything about Judaism, you know that the the Israelites were bound to their Bible, what they called the Tanakh, right? If you thought that was the Torah, no, it's the Tanakh, the Old Testament Bible. And it was the idea of Judaism not to go beyond what is written. It's the main point Obey that which was revealed. Obey that which we have received from God through Moses, through the prophets. Don't go beyond what is written. And Paul is taking all of that history and all of that purpose and he's bringing it into and importing it into the fledgling Christianity. This newborn thing, he's tying it to this deep, long story. And he's saying, don't go beyond what is written. As you watch this passage play out, you're gonna understand more and more of what he's saying. He's telling them, don't be puffed up. Don't be swollen with pride over how you think you know the gospel or how you think you're teaching the gospel. He says to them in verse seven, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? It's one of the passages in Corinthians we've been quoting for the months we've been doing this. What do you have you did not receive? The gospel is a gift. It is a gift no less than the gifts you'll be giving to each other in a week or so. It's given from God freely. Biblical authors and gospel passages try to, to, to build in the idea of grace and free gift. And when you read the gospel passages, it resonates with those phrases. It's no less a gift to them than it is to us. This salvation we know was freely given, a gift. And a gift can't be bragged about. The giver can be bragged about. You are not gonna believe what my wife got me for Christmas. You are not gonna believe it. But that's about the giver. It's not the gift. You can't go, guess what I got? Look at me. Well, you can. No one likes you, but you can. I'll go ahead and skip to the end of that. People are going, that's great when you leave. (laughs) The person who receives is not the bragger. The beggar who gets the coin can't brag about now being rich. And the gospel cannot be bragged about by the person who thinks they own it. Calvin, commenting on these verses, says this. God cannot 
receive his due by any other way than our emptying ourselves of all our claims to glory. The man who boasts, having no ground to stand on, is an idiot and a fool. Good old Calvin for you, right? We can revel in our station as beggars before God. When Paul says, I will boast only in this, Christ and him crucified, look, you are not gonna believe what God gave me. You are not gonna believe what God did. As we enter the season where we are fully concentrating on that manger, let yourselves be drawn into the awe of it. The awe of God becoming a baby that he might dwell among us. The gift of that God, the generosity of that God. Look at what God did. Paul is trying to press into the Corinthians this sense of awe of this gospel they've been given that now they're bragging about because they think they've got it figured out or they think they've figured out how to teach it better or their guy's the best. All of it is folly. It's all folly. The gospel is the rock. The rest of it is wind and dust. And as Paul digs into this, he tries to, to integrate the ways that they're bragging about the gospel and rip them apart. He starts with this in verse eight and nine. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And you, and that you did reign that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Now hidden in this verse, Paul is making a very contemporary commentary. It's gonna be missed by us a little bit, but I wanna point it out to you. This first phrasing here, come on little pen. All right, it's not working, there we go. This first little phrasing here, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings. During Paul's time and in Greek culture, there were two schools of philosophy that were constantly battling each other for cultural dominance. The Stoics and the Epicureans. These are two, if you took philosophy 101 in college, you're probably going, yeah, I kind of remember that, but not really, all right? Stoics and the Epicureans. The distinction between them, the Stoics, the name gives it away. These were high, highly disciplined, highly regulated, high morals, right? Epicureans' mantra, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's kind of the picture between them. One of the Stoics' mantras was, in our discipline, in our morality, we are already rich, and we are already kings, they would chant, look at us rich, look at us kings because of their discipline and their morality. And it was very easy to marry stoic philosophy morality 
to gospel morality. And so already the Corinthians are showing one of the most, most putrid things that continually happens to the gospel and it's people trying to marry the gospel to worldly philosophy to make it all make sense. And so what's obviously happened in the Corinthian church is that a stoic philosophy group has integrated itself, has tried to use the gospel as a way to both advance stoicism and the gospel. And Paul is kind of mocking that picture. He's like, why do you even need the gospel? You're already rich. You're already kings. Every time the gospel marries itself to philosophy, there's disaster. When the gospel married itself to Aristotelianism, if you're a philosophy person, it took the Reformation to dig it out. Back to the sources, they would cry. Go back to the written things, the early humanists would write. And then the gospel keeps marrying other philosophies. We've just come out of a long period of the gospel trying to be integrated with postmodern philosophy. It gave us the emergent church. It gave us all these kind of ways in which the gospel is being pressed against and pushed against in ways that clarity is needed. It's always a disaster. On our college campuses today, the main threat, believe it or not, Xers and boomers, is the gospel being married to Marxism. Marxism is the next field. Prepare yourselves. You're already hearing it. Oppression, power. That's the language of Marxism. The gospel speaks about those things in different ways. And the, Paul is trying to get through to the Corinthians. Stick to the old road. Don't try to make it palatable. Don't try to, to figure out how to integrate it better. Stick to it, dig in with it. He says, already you've become rich, already you've become kings, and he points out the contrast with the gospel they're trying to live out, with the gospel he preaches and how it affects him. He says, you've got all you want. I wish you were kings so that we could rule with you, but God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. If you remember our talk about the Greek system, fools equals immoral to the Greek. In our culture, we don't get that, but in the Greek culture, being a fool was immoral. He says, we are, we are fools for Christ's sake. We're immoral to their eyes for Christ's sake. Because what Christ is teaching is not what they're teaching. But you are wise in Christ. Can you feel that? What he's saying to them? But you fit right in. You go along with the flow as easy as it pleases you. You just slap the name Christ on it. And you're not called to live other. You can look just like them. You can talk just like them. You just slap the name Christ on it and everybody's happy. But it's not Christ. And it's not the old road. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our hands. Because of the way that Paul wrote about manual labor as Christianity became one of the defining factors of the West, manual labor became ennobilized. 
When we read manual labor, we are still Western enough to go, that's right. Manual labor's good. The Greeks despised manual labor. A person who had to do manual labor was a slave. It was a, as low of a status as you could possibly get. When you watch Paul write his letters and he says things, we worked with our hands. We didn't owe anything to anybody. That is him saying we became cursed to the culture so that you could hear the gospel. Listen to what he's saying. We labor with our, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. But you didn't know that scum of the earth was biblical, did you? The word scum, though, is loaded. A loaded term. It's perikatharma. Perikatharma. And it was the word used for human sacrifices. It was the word used of the people so low in society that they could be sacrificed to the gods and not be missed. But it was a very specific reason they were sacrificed to the gods. They were only sacrificed to the gods when sins needed to be atoned for. And so Paul is wrapping up the gospel into their notion of a sacrifice. He's saying we are the sacrifice for the atonement of sins. We are the ones, he's not saying he's Christ. That's blasphemy, that would be problematic. He's saying we are the hands and feet of that sacrifice. And we are the ones who are carrying it out. We are completing, he will say, what was lacking in Christ's suffering. Now, if you are Orthodox Christian enough, when I say something is lacking in Christ's sacrifice, you should immediately go, "Ah, ah, heretic, let's get him, right? But what Paul is saying is that Jesus' sacrifice was perfect. It only misses one thing, and that's its presentation to you and me. The person who evangelized you and the person who evangelized them and the person who evangelized them and the person who evangelized them and them and them and them and them and the chain of the people who brought the sacrifice of Christ to you and to me through the millennia were what were lacking in Jesus's sacrifice. And today we hold this place to be what was lacking, to be the next link in the chain, that the gospel go out from us into the new hearers, be it our family, be it strangers, be it the community, be it the world, to make up what is lacking in Christ's sacrifice in this day. And to do that, we have to stick to the old roads. By that, I don't mean we don't innovate how we do things. I mean, for goodness sake, I'm up here using an iPad like Paul would think it was the devil and beat it with a shovel, right? I'm talking about being faithful. I'm talking about 
being faithful, about trusting an old road. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. And his terms of endearment come back. It comes back to them to call them back to the path that they are abandoning for social status, for ease of mental clarity. And as the rest of the epistle will blaze out for their sinful nature that is denying themselves no appetite. But to admonish you as my beloved children, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul is telling them, you were birthed into this kingdom by the gospel that I came to Corinth and preached to you. And I am your father in the gospel. And there's lots of people teaching you about it. And those are guides but they don't have the stake in you that a father does. He's not, he's not necessarily saying these guides are worthless, although we're gonna find out some of them are. He's saying to them, this gospel was handed to me through a revelation of Jesus himself. In, in 2 Corinthians, Paul goes into great lengths about what happened to him on the Damascus Road. He was called by God himself and taught the gospel for these people. And he's not gonna let them wander off through simple silliness or even profound lack of intent of even following it. I hope that, that we are all that to each other. It's, not, it's, not, it's my job and it's my calling to be a teacher to you I hope I'm faithful to it, but it's, it's not me, it's not Rick, it's not the elders, it's all of us. It's the community, it's what the interrelationships of the church. So we call each other to stand firm and stay on the path. I became your father through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. I want you to think about the boldness of that sentence. I mean, Paul has just spent the whole book trying to convince them that one teacher is not more important than any other teacher. And then he says, but imitate me. And Paul says this in several of his books. Be imitators of me, he'll say in other places, as I am of Christ. To hand down this gospel, to push it forward. He then tells them, I'm sending you someone else that is an imitator of me so you can be an imitator of him. He says, this is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. To that same Timothy, later on, Paul writes this to him. He says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. He's telling Timothy, don't go beyond what is written. That is why I sent you Timothy, 
my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. It's, man, that is as loaded a statement as it gets. Because it goes back to John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist showed up on the scene, crazy, living in the desert, wearing animal skins, eating bugs, no one knew what to do with him. The whole world, it seemed, in Jerusalem was coming to hear this guy preach. And they would say, are you the one who was to come? And he would say, no, I'm not the one who was to come. I am the voice in the wilderness saying, make straight the way of the Lord. Same word in Greek. Paul is loading this in to that. That the ways of Christ are being made straight. That we are to stay on that path and to continue to push that path forward. And he ties it in all the way back to John the Baptist. To the, when Jesus first appeared on the scene. And he's saying this faithfulness, this deep reverence is not just because it's what's best for us, it's because it is a reflection of the faithfulness that God has shown us in that manger, in that cross, and in that upper room when the Holy Spirit fell. The Christian good is the Christian good because of its reflection of the good of God. And God's faithfulness reigns. And in this season, we put up lights and trees. And we gather and we sing. Because all we're doing is celebrating a promise fulfilled. Why do you love Christmas? Why do you love it? I know you're in church and you're supposed to give the church answer. Well, it was what you said, the faithful God thing, right? (laughs) But let's be honest, it goes beyond that a little bit. It's not wrong, that's not wrong. I mean, our whole culture loves Christmas. The accountants at the businesses love Christmas. Straight secularists with no ties to any sort of revelation, love Christmas. And it's adorned for many of us in nostalgia. Right? We sit here now and some of us are looking forward to seeing the grandchildren on Christmas morning and seeing the light and the delight in their eyes and we're instantly transported back to our grandchildren our grandfathers, our grandparents, and wondering, is this what they thought when they saw me? You're either a child now, so excited you can't wait. My two sons are about to skin us both alive. And I'm looking at them wondering, is this what what my family thought? I'm thinking about long gone great-grandparents and grandparents. I'm thinking about becoming a Christian when I was 18 and looking at Christmas radically differently. It's Christmas carols that were written in the 1800s. It's the story from World War I when the two opposing sides held a ceasefire and came out to the middle of 
no man's land to celebrate together. But it's more than that. If you go all the way back to the manger, what you're seeing there is a promise. To us, we see the empty grave and we see the empty manger and we know of a risen king, but it goes beyond that. It goes to the people who were waiting for it before it ever happened. To the woman at the temple who God told you won't die until you see him at the end of her years. It comes to a people in a kingdom that have been waiting for almost a thousand years since their kingdom fell, saying, where is this king to come? Where is this one who's promised? We believe you, God. Where is he? It comes to the people who, when that kingdom was in splendor, when that kingdom reigned, when it was the greatest kingdom in the world, who, who then were looking for the one who Moses had promised, who said, there's coming one like Moses who will return your hearts to me. Because even though they had all the money in the, king, in the world, they were powerful military, their hearts wandered constantly from the one. And some said, where is the one of Moses? When's he coming? It goes back to the slaves, the remnant in the desert, plagues fresh in their nostrils, wondering if the manna would show up that night, and looking at a ragtag group and thinking to themselves, we were promised that we would outnumber the stars one day, and how is this even possible? And it goes back to a man and a woman in a garden lost, naked, and knowing what they've lost. Whom God says to them, one day the son of a woman will be struck, but he will crush the head of the thing that lost us everything. The long road, the beaten path through the millennia of humanity's good times and the millennia of suffering, it has come to this moment when now we are standing here, grave empty, manger empty, wondering, will he come back? Is he ever coming is this ever going to end? Faithfulness. Hold to the road. Because the kingdom's coming. Because the king is coming. He came as a baby. He came as a prophet. He came as a king. He comes in ways we never expect. He comes at night when the powers don't see him. But one day they will. He comes in the heart when the faithful desperately need a word from God. He shows up in ways you can't imagine. And yet sometimes he shouts and sometimes he whispers, but he is coming. The manger one day was filled. The cross one day was filled with a body. The empty tomb wasn't empty. And then it wasn't. And he raised and he reigns and he lives and he's coming. He 
is coming. And he's going to be found at the end of a long, faithful road. Don't give it up for ease or power or comfort. The beaten path will be the one from glory to glory. Praise our Lord and Savior. Will you stand and pray with me? As we close our time, if you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. If you don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about the risen Savior, the long road of God's faithfulness to those who believe, we'd love to talk to you about it. Some of our elders, members of our prayer team will be here. As we close, we'd love for you to come. And let's pray together and then have one very quick announcement. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we praise you for all the things you are doing in our world. Some of them we cannot even begin to fathom. Others of them are right in our face. But God, let us praise you for them all. And let us praise you most of all for that baby in a manger, that thief on the cross, so they thought, who became our hope, resurrected in power, he reigns, and he will return, not as a baby in the manger, but as a conquering king in power, arrayed in splendor. God, I pray that you'll keep us all on the road. The winds are gonna blow us off. We'll walk off of it sometimes. But if you could call us back, we can look back at the dust of the ground trodden and keep walking forward so that when our time is done, we will say, blessed be the name of the Lord where he has given me a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We pray it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior King. Amen.